From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. You never know where the twists and turns of the season will take you, and the Gators certainly didn't expect what came their way at Kentucky. While Florida improved to 3-0 with the unlikeliest of comebacks, it came at the cost of losing starting quarterback Felipe Franks for the rest of the year. On today's show, FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry join us to wade into the uncharted quarterback waters ahead, look at the challenges Tennessee brings to the Swamp, marvel at former Gator Eddie Pinheiro's clutch kicking in Chicago, reflect on soccer coach Becky Burley's history-making 500th win, and recall the best sports center commercials in the PAT. Then, grad transfer John Greenard stops by to discuss his wayward path to Gainesville, his enduring connection to Todd Grantham, and much more. But first, 10 years after Tim Tebow suffered the concussion heard round the world in Lexington, Felipe Franks was met with a far more gruesome injury, as a dislocated ankle ended his season just as it was truly getting started. Despite that, the Gators rallied behind backup quarterback Kyle Trask and prevailed, which led us to start a roundtable by asking Scott and Chris what they took away from the nail-biter against the Wildcats. They found a way to win. I mean, that's the biggest takeaway I had from that game. Uh, anytime you lose your starting quarterback in the fourth quarter, you're on the road, you're down by 11 in your SEC opener. Uh, it did not look good for Florida. Uh, and then enters Kyle Trask and, you know, a guy who he said earlier this week, Adam, he hasn't started a game since he was a freshman in high school. Wow. Uh, and we've seen him sparingly at Florida, obviously, mostly in, you know, mop-up duty when the game's uh, out of reach. Uh, he's been in the program for four years, but was never able to take ownership of the starting job. And he comes in and, you know, leads the Gators on three touchdown drives. And uh, he looked really good on that opening drive when he came in and hit four out of five passes and went down and then made a really nice play on a uh, on an option play to Michael P. Ryan that really re-energized the Gators and uh, helped them uh, overcome a hostile crowd. And it was really when you add everything up that we saw and you add the injury and just bad play, uh, they, did, they weren't playing their best in that game. And to still come out there and be 3-0 and and uh, – going back home to face Tennessee, you know, Dan Mullen and his team, they were certainly disappointed in losing Felipe Franks. I mean, it's hard not to be for what he's put into work to get where he is. But equally, they were also very uh, excited to see what Kyle Trask was able to do and to come away with the win. And at this point, that's the most important thing because you got Tennessee and Towson and then you've got a stretch coming up that is as tough probably as any team in the nation has this year. I would say that uh, something Dan Mullen pointed out in his uh, Monday press conference and something he certainly uh, put to his team, he said at halftime, even though they were down, expect to win the game. And uh, he pointed to last year. He said, I believe, I think it was less than seven minutes left in the game last year, and the score was exactly the same as it was this year. I believe uh, Kentucky was winning 21-16. to 16. Kentucky made the plays to win that game, Okay. 
Florida made the plays to win this game. Maybe it's because they expected to win. And maybe last year when they were in those circumstances, maybe they didn't. So maybe it's a matter of learning how to win in this system with this coach. And maybe it speaks to the growth and the development of, of the program and the uh, mentality in the locker room literally one year later to the day that Florida does what it did. And it had to do it with a with a different quarterback. I mean, you read Scott's story this week about uh, about Kyle Trask and his plight or odyssey, if you will, um, just to get on the field for for meaningless snaps. It's been a long, long time for a fourth year junior. I mean, couldn't beat out, you know, Malik Zaire a couple of years ago. You know, Malik Zaire got the got a couple of the snaps before him. But to come in there and under duress like he did and be as calm and cool as he was and take what the defense gave him and then make some of the plays he made, especially that pitch back to LaMichael Pirine, you know, it just speaks to his preparation, speaks to his, um, I guess, mentality in terms of, I mean, I, I can't imagine someone having a better mentality of being the backup quarterback. And the guy could have been a grad transfer. He never even thought about it. He said he was the guy. He graduated already. So two years left. He could have gone somewhere and played right away for two years. And uh, he didn't do that. So congratulations to him. He's the toast of the town. But the circumstances obviously are completely different now. Say what you want about Tennessee. They still got SEC players. Uh, they still got a defensive coach who learned uh, his craft uh, at Alabama under Nick Saban. And that guy's going to have a week to prepare for Kyle Trask, whereas Kentucky probably put very little preparation into preparing for a quarterback. This is going to be a different kind of animal for him. And if he's the pro like, you know, like he has been, I imagine he'll be okay this weekend. And we'll talk more about this weekend in a few minutes. I do want to talk about kind of the big picture for what the loss of Franks means, because obviously your starting quarterback goes down. It can really alter the, the trajectory of your season. So I mean, I'm curious for you guys. I know a lot of this also depends on how you feel about Dan Mullen, his ability to, to patch things together with Kyle Trask and also with Emory Jones. Do you think Florida's expectations change in a significant way because of this injury, or is it sort of status quo? The expectation doesn't change within, and I'm not sure knowing this fan base and reading Twitter every day, I'm not sure the expectation externally changes uh, with regards to that, but I point to one play uh, last week in terms of how Dan Mullen can adjust on the fly. Let's go to Josh Hammond touchdown. That's a Kadarius Tony play. Okay. Uh, Josh Hammond, I don't think he'd ever had a rushing attempt in his career at Florida. I could be wrong, but he sure looked uh, like, I don't know, Barry Sanders on that play or something like that. I mean, Jan Mullen is an exquisite play caller. And that was the right play at the right time to the right guy. And, and in circumstances where he adjusted on the fly, I mean, we, you ask about Felipe Franks, how did they adjust on the fly to losing Kadarius Tony, to losing C.J. Henderson, to losing Jabari Zaniga uh, in the first quarter of that game the other day? Um, I think they're going to be okay. So I, I think it's performance related. And, you know, Kyle Trask is under the microscope right now. I think Scott's going to probably agree with me to some, knowing this team like we know it and knowing this coach like we know it. I think he's a really, really good coach. And I think uh, preparation and messaging to his team is one of his strengths. No, I do agree totally, Chris. I, I think I don't think expectations change at all, Adam. I, there's a couple of reasons I say that, starting with Dan Mullen, because his expectations haven't changed. And then you go to the quarterback position specifically, and you know you never know how this is going to work out when you lose your starting quarterback in the middle of a season. I mean, it, and it, we're, we we don't know how this is going to work out long term. I mean, right now. We know that Kyle Trask came in against Kentucky and did everything right, and the Gators won. And it's a great story. It's a great start. 
But I still think that as this goes on, I think we're going to see some of Emory Jones. I mean, Dan Mullen has said that as much. I think when you look at their skill sets now that they have, I think Felipe had a skill set that was a combination of both Emory and Kyle Trask. I think Trask and Emory Jones, their skill sets are they're more different. Um, Kyle Trask is your classic drop-back passer. Uh, he has been his whole career. Is he physical enough, and can he run? Yeah, we saw it. He had a four-yard touchdown run that put the Gators ahead uh, up at Kentucky. But is are they going to design a lot of runs for him? I, I wouldn't think so. I think that's where Emory Jones comes into the picture more. And this is a team that has really struggled to establish the running game through three games. And uh, they were trying to do that with Felipe some. Obviously, the, the play that he got hurt on, it was a pass first, and he tried to take off. It was just an ugly play from the get-go. But we've seen him have a little success there. But maybe that's where Emory Jones does finally get a bigger role uh, because of his ability to help the run game out. Don't know how it's going to play out yet. Again, it's still early. But as far as your original question, I don't think there's any any expectations change. I think one thing that really benefits any team in this situation is when the guys who you have to go to have so much experience in the program. I mean, Kyle Trask is in his fourth year in the program. He came in the, the same week as Felipe Franks. And then Emory Jones has been around now for two seasons. And, you know, Dan Mullen was asked this week, Where's Emory Jones' preparation level to when you used Chris uh, Leak and Tim Tebow back in 2006? And he says, well, it's a lot further along than it was for Tim Tebow in 2006. And, you know, Tebow played a played a nice little role on that team that won the national championship. But I thought that was a, a pretty big endorsement of some of the behind-the-scenes development for Emory Jones. And, again, that's one of the reasons why Dan Mullen and his staff, you know, you're going to go in and without Felipe Franks, but they're going to go in it with the, the same expectations they had when they had him. Yeah, the Kentucky game was also controversial in a sense because you had three targeting calls. I don't know if I can remember a game where three guys all got tossed for targeting. Um, the most controversial one of those was the last one at Kentucky's defensive end. And it's something I talked to, to John Greenard about coming up later in this show. But I'm curious what you guys think about targeting as it is now. Are, are they getting better with refining and enforcing this rule, or is it going the other direction? You know, it's been inconsistent. I think that's why you still have many discussions about it, whether it's with players, coaches, the media, fans. Any Anytime it happens in the course of a game, there's going to be an immediate response. And I, I mean, I, I saw replays of the targeting on the Kentucky player on Trevon Grimes. That looked pretty clear to me. The other the one on Steiner, I mean, again, it, it looked like I can see why the flag was called. I mean, Dan Mullen, after the game, he, he, he was illustrating to the media, like, it's just like, get your chin up a little more. He would have been okay there. It's just, and you know, I understand that in the heat of the moment, I mean, it's, it's, you're not thinking about that stuff. I mean, you, it's impossible. Just like when Josh Hammond had the big run. Yeah. Everybody wants him to get down. It's just not natural to get down. Uh, it's same for those targeting penalties. And as a player, I know that's got to be, difficult because you you're out there you're you're in the moment and you're wanting to make the play and and a lot of it is by the time you've already kind of launched your body it could have as much to do with the other player the way he moves his body that created the penalty as much as what you do so I don't think it's going to be an issue that gets resolved anytime soon it's just a new part of the game that I think we're all still trying to figure out we're all still getting used to 
but it certainly impacted that game in a big way. Anytime you have, you're going to start putting extra scrutiny on something as subjective as something like that. It's going to be controversial. You could probably do a six hour podcast of going to Buffalo Wild Wings and you know, on a Sunday afternoon and start talking to fans about what they think about targeting that, or pass interference or anything like that. Um, but I mean, most of the time these calls, I mean, it looks like the helmet is going first. That's just what they're going to look like or excuse me, what they're going to look for. Now, now you're doing more thought into it and time and people sitting around having time to, uh, complain about it or dissect about it. Um, I don't know how, how much good is going to come out of it, but, uh, we're going to get more of this kind of stuff before we get less of it, I'm afraid. Well, hopefully there's not too much more of it this weekend when Florida plays Tennessee because it really breaks up the game and you don't want that kind of controversy. You just want it to be straightforward. So let's talk about Tennessee and the challenge at hand. Um, obviously, most people know that Tennessee lost their opener to Georgia State. That made headlines across the country. Then in week two, they lost at home to BYU. So they were 0-2 at home. And then they beat Chattanooga to get something under their belts. But obviously, it's a team that's struggling at the moment. I'm curious what you guys see as the biggest challenges they present to the Gators. Well, they're, they're an SEC team. And so they're going to have SEC players. Uh, they've been decent at, at recruiting. I mean, it's just, you know, like anything else, it's turnovers and taking advantage of, of scoring opportunities. Um, it's funny, I was on a, a radio show um, from Knoxville this week. My walk-up music, if you will, was like, it's very kind of, I think it was, I think it was Al Green or or Marvin a Marvin Gaye song. He was romanticizing how the old Tennessee rival, Florida rivalry, how he longed for the old days. And in the 90s, this was one of the preeminent games of the year. And it was played second or third week in September. And basically, if you lost the game, your your season was pretty much over in terms of championship hopes. I mean, you couldn't name back in the 90s, you, you can't name five games that were that were more gung-ho than a game like this. Maybe Florida State, Miami, and then you can start thinking about a few others. You might be able to come up with some, but Tennessee, Florida was was it. What is it now? 13 out of 14, I believe. Florida's won seven straight yep. at home. The issues with Tennessee are they have much uh, turmoil coming on with their fan base, I would think. They're only bringing 2,600 people to the game at Florida Field this weekend, and I mean, they used to be uh, 8,000. That's what the percentage was. You would get 10% of the stadium. Um, so I, I think when you talk about what do the Gators have to face, I think it's just about doing your job and not getting caught up in stuff because that, you know, Tennessee can't be very confident right now. I saw where, uh, you know, they lost the first game of the year to Georgia state, which, uh, obviously they, they just wanted to, uh, draw on quarter Jeremy Pruitt and some of the players after that game. I saw this past weekend, Georgia State lost to Western Michigan 55 to 10. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I don't know if that has any new anything to do with anything, but it certainly got my attention. But uh, again, I go back. They have SEC players. They have SEC speed. They'll have size. You know, Flor- and Florida is going to be down bodies. Uh, some really good players won't be able to play again. I don't anticipate seeing C.J. Henderson or Jabari Zanigo or, uh, or Kadarius Toney. I don't think that's going to happen, uh, obviously, and the quarterback switch, of course. So it's got to be pretty basic in terms of take advantage of your scoring opportunities. Don't turn a ball over. That's what happened last year when Florida went to Knoxville. And that was a game that, that was pretty anticipated for the Tennessee people. And they it was over really, really fast. Uh, it was over by halftime. And uh, I, I would think Florida would like to do the exact same thing to them down here. Don't give them any chance going in the second half. They can make a win the game. Yeah, I mean, Chris hit on all the highlights, and it's not your dad's Florida-Tennessee robbery. Certainly, it's been a mess, and 
I don't have a lot to add other than my dad lives in East Tennessee, and he called me the Sunday after the Georgia State loss. And he's not even a, a Tennessee fan. He just gets a kick out of the people he goes to church with about <laughs> how, how upset they are after a game. And he called me and said, when they were so upset that one of them said he's even going to just start reading FloridaGators.com to learn about this game. So he cracked me up with it. He said, that's kind of where the Tennessee fan base is, guys. And, uh, you know, it, it is unfortunate uh, from a program that has such a rich history that they've been in the dump so long. I don't know if the solution's there, but a rider friend called me the other day, and he's going to be at the game. And I told him, to me, a good story idea was just to have your binoculars and watch Phil Fulmer the entire game. And you could get a better feel for maybe where he's leaning because the speculation up there now, if things don't get turned around, he might just start coaching again. I don't know if it's near that in reality, but that's the fact that that kind of discussion is even in the public domain. Is That's where the Tennessee program is right now. But Florida, oh. they can't care about any of that. They got to go out because they're they got to go out and win the game. Like Chris said, this is an SEC team still. And I'll say this: I mean, we really haven't talked any kind of football like XO element to it. I mean, Florida, Florida needs to run the ball. Uh, yeah. They're twelfth in the league in rushing right now at one hundred and thirty nine, almost one hundred forty yards a game. But I think well uh, over two hundred that came in the in the UT Martin game. Um, Tennessee is is twelfth in the league in run defense. So. Uh, I don't know what that's going to mean. It's a matchup, maybe, you know, one a Florida weakness against a Tennessee weakness. Maybe Florida can exploit that. But you want to do Kyle Traston favors, you better be able to run the ball. And I looked at – I know Florida had some decent run numbers last week. 76 of those came on that play at the end when uh, Kentucky was on a full sellout to try to stop that third and five and get the ball with less than a minute to go. So that kind of maybe skewed the digits a little bit. But uh, when I talk about scoring opportunities and taking care of the football, running the football in this particular game, and for this team, uh, as the season progresses, is as important as anything right now, given the situation at the quarterback position. Something else that we'll see this weekend is another 25th anniversary celebration, this time for the 1994 team. And, you know, Chris, we talked about this before we started recording. It seems like every year we've got one of these going on because Florida was so successful in the 90s. And each year it's another 25th anniversary. So I know you're working on a series right now that's up on FloridaGators.com. But tell us what's special about this particular 25th anniversary team. Well, it's the first one that went back to back at them. And uh, Florida uh, obviously won their first SEC title in school history in Spurrier's second season, 1991. If you're sitting in, in his office having the same conversation we're having right now, he'll say they won it in 1990 also. However, they were on probation uh, with deeds of nobody involved with the program at that time. So eh, so he'll, he could he could talk about that. But this team and this season, the 94 season, was unique in that um, Florida started the season number one for the first time in school history. They were number one to open the season. Um, it was only the second time in the school history that they were ranked number one, the first time being in 1985 for one week until Georgia beat them. Um, they were on probation that year also. Uh, so um, I have fun with these things because in my 10 years covering this team, I, I saved uh, everything I wrote from those years. I did that for them and also for the for the other teams that I covered when I when I went elsewhere to cover the NFL. But you can go back and it's one thing to like call. Let's say I wanted to call Kevin Carter up and talk about, hey, that 94 team and he's reminiscing. But I like to go back and see what they said at the time with these newspaper stories that I actually wrote and pull out these quotes. And it gives you a good reminder of Steve Spurrier at his most candid best in the moment, almost like living it again in real time. And uh, I, that's how I present these stories. And uh, it's a four-part series. 
it breaks the series down in, in four parts. Uh, the first five games when Florida was number one uh, and f- started five and zero. There's a part two that the real uh, uh, hardcore fans uh, may just want to bypass. So only the Auburn game that they lost at home, their first SEC loss. The uh, the part three is uh, starts with playing Georgia in the swamp, which is obviously a historic. At that time, it was the first time in 59 years it happened. So 59 plus 25 it still hadn't happened since 84 years. So that was a memorable night. I was there for that, obviously. And uh, part three kind of takes it to the end of the season. And part four, what I like to think is one of Spurs' greatest uh, single-week coaching jobs he ever did. He had to rally the team from the mental and emotional uh, uh, just meltdown they had uh, and physical meltdown in Tallahassee with that choke at the Doke tie and get them ready to play for an SEC championship against an unbeaten Alabama team in one week. He was able to do that, and uh, they were able to hoist that hardware. Ended up losing to FSU in a rematch of that game in the Sugar Bowl, but a great season, back-to-back SEC titles on the way to win in four straight, which is something only Bear Bryant ever did. Hadn't been done since. Nick Saban hadn't done it. So uh, I encourage uh, Gator fans a long time and even a relatively, uh, uh, you know, neophyte Gator fans go back and read about what that era was like because it was special and there may never be another era like it uh, for Florida fans. We'll be honoring some former Gators in the swamp this weekend and other former Gators uh, probably can be honored anywhere he wants in Chicago right now. Eddie Pinheiro, uh, who was kind of the, the biggest recruit McElwain brought in to Florida after all the, the kicking woes prior to his arrival. Uh, he was a, a soccer player. Was it Juco playing soccer? It never actually kicked in a football game, but had a huge leg and expressed interest. And three years later, he's now making headlines in the NFL. So I guess, can you guys just talk about um, the, the remarkable story of Eddie that we told on this podcast actually back in 2016 and now is continuing to play out on, on a national scale? Yeah, I mean, it's a story that Florida fans are obviously familiar with, but now the national fans or the Chicago fans are getting to see it. And, you know, I saw that replay. I watched it a couple of times, guys. And the one thing that stood out to me that was so Eddie in my mind was, you know, he was, he was such a genuinely excited kid as what I call him to, you know, be with Florida. And you saw that pure joy come out of him after that field goal doing like almost like airplane wings running around the field, which in the NFL, you don't get as much of that as you do in college football, but it was cool to see Eddie still being Eddie uh, now with the Bears in his second season in the league, started his career in Oakland and didn't stick there. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, Chicago has had a lot of kicking woes. He could be the answer there, certainly was in that game. And one thing you know about Chicago, if you do well there and you can stick around for a while, they're going to love you. And uh, it's a great start for Eddie to his uh, Chicago journey. And again, you know, when I think back on him, I just remember, you know, writing this story his first year, that his first game in the swamp and his uh, parents, uh, you know, his dad came over from Cuba. His mom was from South America. And he talked about just the difficulties and the sacrifices they've made uh, for him to, you know, get an opportunity growing up to play soccer and how his dad would practice with him and take him, you know, to learn how to kick when he thought that was maybe an avenue to a college scholarship. And, uh, you know, you love those stories and uh, good for Eddie. And uh, I hope we see more of those. I've always been amazed at how so many great kickers in college, their kicking doesn't translate to the NFL. Um, Eddie Pinero was a really good kicker. And I, I was he drafted by the Raiders, I believe, in the sixth or seventh round? 
I know how important John Gruden thinks of kickers. I know he, I do know that John Gruden wasn't happy when they took Sebastian Janikowski in the first round, but getting Eddie Pinheiro in the sixth or seventh round seemed like a steal. Um, I, off the top of my head, I don't know who the Raiders kicker is right now, but I do know that the Bears must are obviously ecstatic with him. They only scored three points the first week. He got all three of those. And I, the fans are really happy just to see him make a field goal that first week, but to see him uh, pipe that, what was it, 55, 56 yarder at, at the horn to, to win, you know, good for him. I mean, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. I thought he was really, really talented. He had the leg to be a pro, and apparently he's got the um, what would uh, Bill Ratliff say, onions to uh, <laughs> to do it in, to do it in the pros as well. Congratulations to him, good kid. <laughs> That's not quite as high as the number five hundred, which is a milestone hit this weekend uh, by Becky Burley, the Florida soccer coach, became just the third soccer coach in NCAA history to win five hundred games and the first female to do it. So. Um, talk about that accomplishment and what that means for her to reach such rarefied air. Well, like anyone, anytime you have a record like that, you always think, usually the, the subjects say, well, it makes me think how old I am. <laughs> um, I, re- I remember writing when Billy Donovan had it, won his 500th game. And when you start putting it into milestones like that, you start thinking about the players along the way that help get them there. And, you know, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, Abby or, uh, uh, Heather Mitts, you know, I'm going back to 19. You talk about this is 500. I remember her first one here. Um, it was in 1995. Florida, it was the very first soccer game in University of Florida history. It was marketed brilliantly, in my opinion. It was two o'clock game against Florida State. Okay, Florida State had in a semi-established program. It was four hours before the season opening game against Houston football game. Damn it, the thing didn't sell out. 4,500 people. They turned them away at the gate. Gators won four to nothing and away they went. I mean, uh, within three years, they were national champions and had beaten juggernaut North Carolina, which had won like a million uh, women's NCAA titles at the time. Uh, so uh, she was obviously very thankful. You had you had uh, some of her best players. I mentioned Heather Mitz. I mentioned Abby Wambach uh, tweeting out. She certainly enjoyed uh, that milestone victory. Yeah, the, you know, you talk about what Becky Burley's done. You talked about what Mary Wise done. I think Tim Walton also had a milestone victory last year, I recall. And bottom line is what that says is the co- collection of coaches they have at Florida is pretty good. And when you go back to really the soccer program specifically and what Chris was talking about, I mean, if you're looking at a blueprint on how to, how to start a program, uh, it doesn't get much better than that. And I thought one of the coolest things I saw guys after that was they had been working with uh, some of the former players to get congratulatory notes uh, on video. And they sent it out right after that win. You know, you had Abby Wambach, you had Heather Mitz, Daniel Fotopoulos. You had some of the greatest players in the program's history. Uh, and it, it was just, it really uh, took off on social media and, you know, I, I think if you've been around the program at all, you, one thing that I've always thought Becky Burley has done as good as any coach as I've ever been around is she's really creates that, well, you know, a lot of coaches say it, but you don't always buy into that whole family atmosphere. I mean, her players, they really do seem like just buddies. I mean, she has a unique relationship with her players, uh, from what I can tell. Well, you know, see how it goes the rest of the year, but a huge win for the Gators and and uh, for Becky Burley, congrats to her. One last thing that goes back to the very to my first point: Daniel Fotopoulos's uh, daughter is on the Florida soccer team now. Wow! Daniel Fotopoulos scored the game-winning goal in the North Carolina national championship match in 1998. So, mm. on turns, baby. <laughs> uh, moving on to our PAT this week. Uh, recently, 
SportsCenter celebrated its 40th anniversary, and uh, it made me think about some of the best SportsCenter commercials, which I, I don't think they're they make quite as many of them now, but I mean, back in the 90s, the 2000s, those were the funniest 15 to 30 second things you could possibly think of in sports. Um, so I want to know from you guys, some of your favorites over the years that stand out that you can still sort of crystallize in your memory. I like the uh, Crocodile Man wrestling with the, the gator. That was pretty funny, actually. Didn't they? And he's walking down the hallway and the elevator opens up. He's crying. And he right. just like jumps, jumps him in the elevator. Steve Irwin. I like that one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Steve Irwin. And, uh, but you know what? The, the one I thought is, is clever because I think mascots are funny when you see them in public and they can't talk. They always just kind of just stand in front of you. It's almost like eerie. You know, I, re- I remember getting on an elevator in the dome in St. Petersburg and an elevator door opens up and the, and the, the Braves mascot just comes in and, I go, hey, what's up? He just kind of looks at me and just <laughs> nods. You know, he can't talk because that goes against the mascot creed. But there's that one, I believe it's Jay Harris, where the elevator opens up and he goes, uh, going up. And it's the New Jersey Devil mascot. Yeah. He just shakes his head at him. Yes. <laughs> and he, he and he's when he's about to get in and he, he gets the hell out of the elevator then and the elevator door just closed. That's one of my favorites, I think. What are the chances? I mean, they must have made hundreds of those that Chris's favorite is also my favorite. What are the chances that was going to happen today? Well, you guys have a unique chemistry. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, at, but Adam, you're a homer. You're going to pick the Gator one. So. No, no, no. No, he's talking about the I'm talking about, the new, I'm talking about my two favorites are both the ones with the New Jersey Devil. So there's the one okay. that you mentioned, and the other one that was really funny was when they're just showing, it's just a shot of the thermostat, and the Pittsburgh Penguin walks up to it and turns it all the way to the cold side, then leaves. That's funny. Then the New Jersey Devil walks up and turns it all the way hot. So the two, the two that involve the New Jersey Devil are my favorites. I can't believe that's one of the ones that, that you mentioned. Those are all funny. The, the one with the gator mascot, I thought, was one of the classics they've done. I've always, I also love, and you guys are going to be able to fill in the blanks here because I don't recall all these little details like you guys do. But the, didn't they have David Ortiz in one where he was attending meetings and like his uniform and a bat and stuff? <laughs> am, am, I miss, am I totally messing that up? I'm trying to, I, I vaguely remember what you're talking about. I don't remember what he did. I, I remember he was doing like the spit handshakes with people. And yeah. I can't remember exactly what went down in that, but I, I remember it was, it was funny. Yeah, just taking it, everything that you do in baseball and translating it into an office setting. Right. And they've done that with other athletes. Uh, I know one where they had, didn't they have LeBron James sitting at a desk one time? And the one of the guy next to him was yelling at him, I think Scott Van Pelt, to, do this and that, and you know he's doing his thing within his basketball uniform. I mean, they, that's one. Of, I think that's actually one of the best things that ESPN's ever done. If you want my opinion, I think those commercials that whoever came up with that idea and whoever put the creative energy into those, uh, that was a home run uh, in my book. I'm sorry that I don't have. I don't know if I have a favorite because it's been a long time since I've watched ESPN consistently. But but the the Gators and the Devils won. I'm, I'm like you guys, man. Those are my two favorite of all time. <laughs> you know, on that note, I guess we'll, we'll have to end the podcast. Anytime Chris and I agree, uh, we have to stop for fear of where else that could go. It's o- only bad places. But I'm glad that we got to add a, a new Chris impression, the Steve Irwin impression to his uh, his incredible roster. And uh, I don't think that's what you guys will be tweeting about and writing about this weekend. It's going to be all about Florida and Tennessee and the Swamp. So make sure to follow them at Gators Scott 
at Gators Chris. And of course, their content will all be on FloridaGators.com. Guys, have fun and stay cool. It's going to be a hot one at noon on Saturday. Uh, thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Coming into a program as a grad transfer isn't always easy, but it certainly helps ease the transition when you're as magnanimous and personable as John Greenard. The Atlanta native was an immediate hit in the locker room and on the field, earning SEC Defensive Lineman of the Week kudos in his first game. We spoke to Greenard about his past and his future, but began by finding out how the Gators endured the adversity they faced in the present in Lexington. Uh, mainly just come back to preparation, you know, understanding, you know, you have to hone in on your details. You know, we understood that this game was going to be a game of uh, in the trenches. And if we establish what we wanted up front, uh, the game will go our way. Uh, we started off pretty slow on offense and defense, uh, but we just stuck together and then still paid attention to the little details as far as like what plays they wanted to run, you know, different formations and stuff like that. So all of that just tied in, you know, our uh, workouts over the summer, you know, uh, that's all Mr. Tough is whenever you got to battle uh, focus in on your emotions and you know not doing thing after whistle to get you a 15-yard penalty you know just channeling all that in and doing that just came to preparation when it came to preparing for the game i know it was somewhat challenging because they had a new quarterback he hadn't played within that system before so there was really not much tape of it how right. difficult was it to adjust in game because you didn't get to see a lot of what he was going to do ahead of time any quarterback i mean we we understood what's that we had a little film from uh when he was at troy i believe uh, understood that he wanted a good guy who can uh, move just a little bit. You know, obviously not as dynamic as Terry Wilson is, but um, understood that he's still a good quarterback at the end of the day and wanted to – I mean, that he can still throw the ball. He's an SEC for a reason. You know, he's at that school for a reason. So uh, we understood that he wouldn't be as much of a runner uh, as Terry and basically want to just keep him in the pocket and uh, just make him be a quarterback. Beyond what impact it had on the game, we'll talk about that in a second, but I think mm-hmm. people often forget that you guys are – not only are you, you people, but you're young people, and these guys are your best friends. When you right. have Felipe go down the way that he did – and the place he holds on that team, what does that do to the sideline? What, how does that affect you guys when you've got a game to play and you're seeing someone you're so close to, I mean, writhing in pain from a gruesome injury? It actually fueled us. I mean, it was it was sad just for him to go down that way in that fashion. But uh, if you look at him, he was going for, he was on the fourth down. He was trying to get to the first down mark. He basically was laying it all on the line for us. And, you know, when I seen that and that happened, I, I instantly I said, yeah, he was trying to do this and basically – get us another first down and get us a, another chance to win. And he laid it out on the line. So why, why not we do the same thing for him? So uh, it was sad that he had to go out like that. But, you know, it's the next man up mentality and we have to keep playing. Now, I know he's going to bounce back stronger than ever. Now, you came to Florida from Louisville. So you've played Kentucky now multiple times for multiple right. teams. What was it like playing them as a Gator after your battles when you were a Cardinal? The last time I played at that stadium, I got a W. So, um, <laughs> but I only really played against uh, Kentucky really honestly one time. I, mean, I think the other time I was a red shirt a year. The next year I played a little bit, but the, uh, I think I played maybe play like three, four plays, and then 2017 year was when I actually got to play and did pretty successful in it. But now to be on my dream team and know guys who had the same mindset as far as wanting to beat them, you know, stole one from us last year, and now we had to be basically go up there and uh, get some uh, redemption and some revenge as well. So. Uh, we definitely had that all in mind, and it helped us out to be able to add the extra umpire victory. Well, I know you weren't part of that team last year, but certainly um, the guys were talking about it, I would guess. Right. It, the revenge part was downplayed in the lead-up, but did you sense from talking to your teammates that that was a, a really significant fueling drive throughout this game? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely one of the uh, the main thing that drove us because we, we lost on our home field, and 
uh, we had a, it was the price to pay for losing at our home field. So uh, understanding that and taking all that to account, I mean, it just made it that much more easier to get prepared and more fired up for this game. So uh, it helped out. And like I said, it fueled us uh, to be able to hold on and come back and, and with a victory. We've seen rules change a lot recently. One of them that keeps getting tweaked is targeting. And uh, right. Kentucky's TJ Carter was thrown out for targeting. And you don't usually see linemen called for that. And it was pretty controversial. So I'm right. curious, when you see something like that happen, how does it affect the way that you play? And how difficult is it to change what you're doing to such a degree when it's kind of instinctively what you've always done? It's extremely difficult as far as the interior guy in uh, front of the D-line because, you know, all your life you're taught fundamentals. But the thing is you make tackles within a – what a five to ten yard uh, radius so uh you don't have to really you know adjust much you know if you get through the line you pretty much hit the run back before it starts up and as far as quarterbacks we always knew that was we call it a target area that we want to hit i mean it's obviously below the neck but then you have the rules where you can't hit him in the legs now so uh we had to basically just adjust and it's really it's really difficult because when you come in as an interior guy you know it's either you're going to hit him as soon as he starts or uh if you run into a pile and you're doing a cleanup guy you know if it's a screen and redirecting uh, you have to change your whole mindset as far as when it comes to tackling, you know, adjusting your height. If I'm a guy like I'm 6'3", 6'4", adjusting to a guy who's 5'10", is going to be very difficult, you know, to, to still come in with that same amount of speed and power to hit somebody is very difficult. Sure. How much do you work on that even on a, a day-to-day basis with coaches as you see more and more of these calls happening? Uh, main thing, I mean, we, we have times where we have a tackling circuit to basically uh, practice that. And then we also have it to where we thud up in our scout team period. Um, and that's what basically practice our tackling forms and stuff like that. So um, getting your head around, you know, making sure that it keep your head up, you know, basically keep your head out of the place. It's, it's difficult, but, you know, uh, it's something that has to be done. And uh, for us to be successful and not have anybody thrown out like they did, uh, we have to basically master that. Mm-hmm. I want to take things back for you. Can you tell us a little bit about your family and where you grew up? Uh, my family, I'm originally from Hiram, Georgia, born in Atlanta, Georgia, Northside Hospital. Uh, my family all from Atlanta. My mother is. My father who's passed away now. He's from Atlanta as well. They knew each other come, uh, growing up. Um, I have a brother. He's and they live in Alabama. Uh, and my sister as well. She's married, and he actually went to school out there. So he's pretty much staying there and working. But pretty much all my family is in Atlanta, and I've been in Atlanta all my life. So uh, moved to Hiram uh, to play ball. Grew up in the church home. You know, my mom kept me in church. You know. My mom and dad introduced me to football at a young age. I think I was about four, and I turned five, and I was my first year playing. And I played every year since. And my dad was basically that guy who taught me all the things on the field. My mom was the one who took me to practices all the time, you know, stayed there for games as well, you know, just doing all the dirty work with my dad as well when the times when he didn't have to work or anything. So football household, my brother played ball, you know, it's it's all a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm the youngest of three, so, you know, I'm a, I am get anything I want when it comes to mama. She, I'm still the baby boy. She's still <laughs> – still treat me as I'm the baby, but pretty much a traditional down south household. So. Mm-hmm. Now, when you started playing, were you always interested in playing defense? Were you bigger than everybody, so it happened automatically? How did you end up where, where you were? I actually played uh, running back all my life. Really? Um, well, running back and line, middle linebacker. That was my positions all of my years of playing ball. And then I got to high school. I think it was like my sophomore, freshman year. I played the same thing. I played fullback and linebacker. And then I started to get a little bit taller, and my coaches started to see it, too. And I got moved to defensive line uh, my 10th grade year. And from that point on, I was playing uh, tight end and uh, defensive line. And the X, they'll throw me out in the X sometimes and be a receiver. So I pretty much played that all my years of high school after that. I feel like for a lot of guys, they start playing when they're younger. But maybe there's a moment where it clicks and you realize, wait a minute, this is something I really want to focus on. I think it can take me places. Mm-hmm. Do you remember having a moment like that when you really fell in love with the game and, and were going to commit to it? 
Right. I've always had a love for it. Uh, but it didn't honestly didn't hit me until my senior year, going into my senior year of high school. Honestly, and that's when I started getting uh, offers after my junior year. And that's when I knew I had a, a chance to be really special at it. So pretty much my senior years went out. It clicked for me. When you were getting recruited, which schools were you most interested in and what made Louisville ultimately stand out? Uh, so I was interested in UK, uh, Missouri and Louisville. Um, UK didn't work out. So, I mean, I went down to uh, Louisville and basically when I seen Coach Grantham and Coach Petrino, what they had going on there, you know, they were being successful. I had a pretty successful year beforehand and I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of what Coach Grantham had going on. I know about his track record at um, UGA. So I, I was already well aware of that. And Missouri was still heavy on me, wanted me to come down. Uh, but by that point, I was still already locked in at Louisville. Now, I want to talk about that connection to Coach Grantham in a second, but just in terms of your time at Louisville and how you ended up here, I guess it goes back to the the very beginning of the first game in 2018, which changed the course of really your entire career. So can you take us through that and then how it led you to where you are now? Yeah, so I mean, I made a tackle um, first game in Alabama. It was the second series, first player or second player in the second series. Uh, I wanted to go make a uh, tackle. Uh, landed awkwardly on my hand after trying to uh, wrap him up and uh, played the next play. I knew something was wrong, middle, the midpoint of the next play going into it. And I couldn't put my hand down like I wanted to. It was starting to be very clicky and stuff. And uh, once I came to, came to the sideline, they basically corrected as if, you know, one of those major injuries that, you know, that you didn't want to see. And I knew then it was pretty serious. So after that, got x-rays, got surgery that next day. And from that point on, obviously, you've seen the results of Louisville last year. You know, it started to go downhill really fast. Coach Trino ended up getting fired. Uh, towards the end of the season, I, I was I have to get a new defense coordinator again. So once I knew that I was also graduating as well in, in the fall, uh, I knew that the ball would be in my court and I could do what I wanted as far as when it came to my future. So um, when that time came, I mean, I explored my options for my name in the portal and seeing that it was an option. And instantly, once I was put in contact with Grant, Coach Grantham, I knew where I was going instantly. And, and that connection with Coach Grant, because I know he was, was he your lead recruiter when you were at Louisville? Yes. Yeah, he was my lead recruiter. What was it about that relationship that clicked so well? Why did you want to play for him so badly? Uh, like I said, I knew about the guys he's, he's coached in the, few, in the past and their success in the NFL and, you know, him having a lot of experience in the NFL as well, you know, uh, telling me things that, you know, and him, him playing offensive line too in college, you know, uh, when you play a guy who knows who used to play that position and understands how to beat those guys like that, you know, you, you have to go to it makes it made me draw closer to him because I understand what uh how he was so successful and why he was so successful so uh being a part of that just made it that much better and I knew that I could be another guy for him are there any guys you look at in the league that you model your game after or you look up to for the the way that they play yeah uh I used to look at well I still do I mean Terrell Suggs is a guy that I watched a lot you know he was kind of like you know more thicker frame you know I could play uh like him some similar you know he has a quick burst off the ball at times he can beat you with power and speed a very wide variety of uh, things that he could do with within himself. So uh, I like his game, you know, uh, Von Miller always is one, you know, uh, with his speed, you know, his playmaking ability. So mm-hmm. uh, those two guys really stood out to me. Yeah, I'm sure it, it's a lot easier to come in and play than to get in and, and join that brotherhood so quickly because some of those guys have been together for years and years. When right. you did arrive in the program, which players did you immediately gel with that made that transition easier for you? Uh, I mean, well, I was in a similar situation, you know, Adam Schuler, you know, he transferred in as well. So he was one of the first guys I met. Uh, then I know, uh, met Zoo and I met uh, Luke Ankrum, then Kyrie. You know, then I just met the entire D-line. And that honestly made it that much better. They basically understood why I, what I was coming in to do, where I was coming from, you know, what I did in my past. And I understand why I did everything. So, and I just started hanging with them. You know, we became really good friends. And I we really, they're my brothers now. So when we get out there on the field and it made it that much better to understand who you're playing next to and why you're playing for them. So. 
uh, doing all that just basically helped camaraderie. And I'm sure playing kind of helps that camaraderie, but how do you connect beyond that? What is it that brings guys together in that situation where you can just introduce someone new and just like that, they're they're part of it? It was more of a maturity thing too as well. You know, I came in very humble. I mean, I, I was still coming off of injury, so I had I hadn't proved anything. I mean, last time I played in, or at least did some of the game was 2017. So mm-hmm. that was two years ago, you know. You got guys, they just got out of the games by the time I got in. So they, they were honestly still in football mode and game mode. So I just came in uh, humble and quiet, you know, just making sure they understood I came into work and I knew nothing was going to be given to me easy. So they respected that. And then they respected me more and I respected them more for uh, opening their arms up to me. How did you feel like you changed as a player from missing the entire year with an injury and having to go through that rehab to getting back on the field just a few weeks ago? Where did you grow the most during that time off the field? Uh, maturity thing and being humble, man. My humility, those things were tested throughout my entire time as my, uh, my recovery because, you know, I've never had a major injury like this. I never had to miss this much time. I, mean, I had a minor injury coming up in my junior year of high school. I mean, I, yeah, my junior high school and also eighth grade. But those were things I only sat out for maybe a game or two for those. So to miss a whole entire year at this level, the stakes a lot higher. You know, it was definitely harder. But I was just basically – um. God was just testing me, just testing, making sure that I kept my faith in him, you know, making sure that I was still going to be able to make those plays and still be able to cheer my teammates on and not be sad about my situation, but happy for other situations as well. Well, it seems like uh, that work paid off, too, because you get back game one, 10 sacks for the mm-hmm. team and your SEC lineman of the week in your first game out. What made that start so explosive for that defensive line, especially? Well, we knew that they were going to have an inexperienced uh, offensive line. You know, it's going to be a, a game of a lot of emotions in the world as well with being a robbery. And we just basically took that and used that to our advantage. You know, we still prepared as if they were the best team that we we're ever going to face. But we knew that we were we, had, we were capable of that. And it just basically at, a, at that point was just execution. Over the course of your football career, now we're going way back to this could be in PB, this could be middle school. I want to know what the most embarrassing moment you've had on the field is throughout your life. Oh, man. The most embarrassing moment I would have to say was when my senior year I got a pick against a rival, and uh, apparently I got caught by the quarterback. So, Oh, uh, no. Yeah, and I was, <laughs> uh, I think I scored, but, you know, they, they didn't give it to me, but a quarterback hit me and knocked me out of bounds. My D line coach. He'll tell you that, and he's still going to hold that over my head for the rest of my life. But you never made that mistake again, I'll bet, did you? No, nah, I won't. Not again. <laughs> I get, I'm going to the house. Um, you mentioned earlier you graduated from Louisville, which gave you so many options to transfer. Um, what's the most interesting class that you've taken over your college career, and what did you learn from it? I, I, mean, so I was in sport administration at Louisville. It had to be my ethics and issues class as far as just discussing, you know, day-to-day issues within the uh, athlete world, you know, things that are going on in the world that affected us, you know, as far as using our platform, understanding, you know, how to understand uh, people take situations or how you uh, break down situations when it comes to football or just sports in general and how to uh, relate to the real world. Away from the field, when you've got some time outside of football in grad school, what do you study in grad school, by the way? I was curious about that. Uh, I'm in business school, getting my uh, MBA in entrepreneurship. Wow. When football is done for you, where do you hope that that MBA can take you? Uh, I definitely want to open up my own spot to basically train athletes, you know, have my own facility to train top athletes. And I wanted to get an agency talk to, you know, possibly being agents, Mm. uh, having those linked with agents as well, you know, have, you know, the top facilities, you know, have Exos and stuff like that. I want to be just basically one of those guys and have my own spot to call mine. That's really cool. So I'm sure that takes up a lot of your time. Um, But when you do have some free time, what do you enjoy doing off the field? Sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If I'm not at this football facility, I'm either studying maybe uh, some film, uh, some classwork, which I dedicate a good portion of my time to, or I'm sleeping. And I'm pretty much sleep all the time. 
There's got to be something fun you do, though, when you got to cut loose. I'm telling you, I've <laughs> I've been doing this all, all of college. I honestly literally like to relax. I mean, anything that I'm doing, I dedicate my entire time to it. I don't I don't have have to do anything, you know. So when I actually do get some time to rest, I don't go out to do much. I mean, I don't plan on doing much. I love to eat and just uh, hang with my friends. Mainly, I mean, I do that as well. I do a lot. Some guys on the D-line, and I honestly just relax. We just love to relax while I was on our feet all the time. Yeah, fair enough. I understand that. A um, couple final things for you, getting back to football. You go against this offense every day in practice. Now, a lot of fans out there especially are wondering, what does the offense look like with Kyle Trask or with Emory Jones? So from what you've experienced from your perspective, what do you think those guys do well that they can bring to the team moving forward? Uh, Kyle Trask, I mean, I knew he's, like I said, I knew he's going to be a good quarterback. I mean, he had the size, he had the intangibles, and I seen him as mechanics in the, on the field. And then when I got here, he was still recovering from the uh, foot injury. But I knew he had a nice arm. He wants to sit in the pocket tall, you know, makes good reads, you know, under pressure as well because we get after him in practice. Uh, that really doesn't phase him. He still makes really good throws. And, I mean, sometimes I understand that he was our backup, but I think in our, in ours we have three good starting quarterbacks that could start anywhere. So um, for him to get this chance and opportunity, it's, it's, it's really big for him. It's a true blessing. You know, his humility is a great thing that is a great trade by him. Um, he def- definitely doesn't get phased under pressure. So his time shot, his time came and he, he showed up. And what can Emory Jones do? Because I'm sure we'll see some packages from him yeah. as well. What does he do that can create challenges for the defense? He's a playmaker. I mean, he can throw the ball and he can also run the ball really well. So him, when you add all that in, into those two, uh, it definitely helps out, and it basically makes another challenge for the uh, offense, I mean, defenses in uh, upcoming uh, games. Coach Moen talked about the importance of coming back to the Swamp for three straight weeks and the consistency that that would give you guys after a really weird start to the season. Can mm-hmm. you just talk about what that means to the players? How's that going to help you guys perform, having that three straight weeks at home? Uh, I mean, we're gonna, that means we're going to have a home field advantage. We're going to have the crowd on our side. You know, we're going to be playing with a lot of motions in the SEC games, big games. Uh, for us to be able to, uh, it's a good challenge for us, uh, basically come on and defend the swamp so that way we can continue to be where we want at the end of the season. So uh, it's going to be a good challenge for us. I mean, we're very excited just to be able to get back in front of Gator Nation. They're going to come in and be packed out very loud, and uh, they're just going to fuel us to be able to play better. I know we're talking early in the week, so you haven't probably gotten full into film study yet, but what have you seen from Tennessee, and, and what do you think are going to be keys to that game? Um, I mean, pretty much they run the same offense that they had last year. Uh, but the thing is, it's just going to come in and play with a lot more intensity because, I mean, number one, it's, it's, it's a rivalry game. So records go out the window. Uh, two, uh, they're not having the season they wanted so far with a start off. But that doesn't mean anything. I mean, they're going to come in and still try to take our heads off the thing we want to do. So understanding that they're still a SEC team. They got really good players on their team as well. And I underestimate them, uh, which could be things that could be uh, lead us get anybody get beat when they play teams in that situation. Uh, but if we understand that we have a, a mission on our mind, understand that that doesn't matter, we'll be successful. Final question for you. First rivalry game in the Swamp. What are you feeling when you think about that? It's exciting. I mean, like I said, I used to only watch this game on TV, and now to be a part of it, uh, it's going to be a, a surreal moment. Uh, I'll be able to take it all in once that time comes, but it'll be a fun one. And I'm just excited to get those pass on that, get, get a taste of my uh, first SEC game in the Swamp. Well, John, you've had quite the journey to get to Gainesville, but I know the Gator Nation is very happy to have you. So thank you for your time and good luck the rest of the season. Thank you for having me. You have a good one. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. (laughs) 
Catch the Gators as they battle the balls in the swamp on Saturday at noon on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG. Then come back next Thursday for our latest episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.